Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. Got a, a, a good but a different Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today that I'm excited to get into. Uh, we have Zan Barksdale who's joining us on the podcast. He is the CEO of uh, Zan Barksdale Baseball LLC. It's a very comprehensive website that, that covers mostly catching stuff, but other, some other stuff as well. And I'll let Zan talk about that in a little bit. But uh, I'll give you the background on Coach Barksdale before uh, we get into questions with him, just so you kind of know a little more about who he is and, and where he where he comes from. He is a Madison, Mississippi native. He played started out his playing career at Holmes Community College, which is a junior college in Mississippi, a really good junior college in Mississippi. Um, while he was at Holmes, he was a two-time All-State and All-Region selection. He has uh, since been nominated to the Holmes Community College Sports Hall of Fame. After Holmes, he went on to play at Ole Miss. Uh, while he was at Ole Miss, the team hosted a regional in 2004. He then went on to play in the Braves organization for three years before jumping into the coaching side of things. From 2007 through 2011, he was an assistant coach at University of Louisville, uh, one of the best NCAA Division I programs in the country. The 2007 team went to the College World Series. Um, the team then won the Big East Championship in 2008, 9, and 10. And, and a really unbelievable thing, he uh, was behind at Louisville. His catchers went 77 straight games without committing an error. That's a really amazing stat. Um, he started his own company in 2008 while he was at Louisville, started Zane Barksdale Baseball LLC at that time, and kind of slowly grew into what it is right now. Uh, the website, again, is a catching, offers a lot of catching specific resources for baseball players, as well as um, some other resources just within the realm of baseball. After he left Louisville, he was an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at East Tennessee State University, a, a very good Division I program, obviously, in Tennessee. He was there from 2012 to 2015. The 2013 team won the first ever uh, Atlantic Sun Conference Championship for ETSU. That team went to the regional for the first time since 1981. Um, in 2016, once he left ETSU, he was named to the USA Baseball 14U National Team Development Program as a as a catching uh, on the on the coaching staff and as a catching coordinator. He was also the catching coach for the 15U National Team. Uh, he's got a book. The strength called Strength Training for Youth Athletes. He's got a book called Catching 101, The Complete Guide for Baseball Catchers. His YouTube videos have more than a million hits. Um, Zan Barksdale is one of the best catching guys in the country, and Zan, we're really glad to have him on the podcast today. Jeff, man, I can uh, I can tell you did your homework. I think the only thing you left out was my Social Security number. <laughs> I couldn't find it, man. I looked for it and couldn't find it anywhere. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Turn me on, man. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I do appreciate you being here. And um, I, I just would kind of like to ask, usually I start with something from the bio, and there are things I'd like to get into there, but I'd like for you to tell people a little bit more about your website. I don't want to make it a, a, you know, a promo or a commercial, a selfless promo for you, but at the same time, I would like you to be able to tell people just what you're doing. Um, the things that you kind of offer on the website in case someone's interested, hasn't seen it before, like, you know, what is a young baseball player, particularly young catcher, what are they going to find on your site, just resources for themselves? Yeah, sure. Well, the short version is I've got a, I've got a lot of different websites and a lot of different resources. Uh, the main one is Catching 101, uh, catching-101.com, and there I have videos and articles and DVDs and, and, you know, different training tools and things like that, um, where my goal is just to put out good information that let people – uh, learn more about you know my favorite position, which is catcher. Obviously, uh, I, talk, I talk to a lot of parents and a lot of coaches all over the all over the country and really the world, and they just don't have access to quality information. And while it's getting a lot better, there are more people out there putting out quality information. 
it's still hard to find for a lot of people. So that's kind of how I started in the online world, just trying to share some of the things I learned from my playing and coaching career um, with people who, who didn't necessarily have access to a, a coach or instructor nearby. I love that, and that's a big part of what Figured Out Baseball is as well, is just trying to get some good information out there because even as the amount of good information you can find grows, the amount of bad information grows probably equally, and I think it's still hard for people, uh, just the, you know, the, the average person to differentiate between what's good and bad out there, but someone with your background, which is you know, why I, I think it's important to get into the background, someone that's done what you've done, you've coached it at a very, very high level, you've played at a very, very high level, and I think that uh, any time that you have a chance to learn from someone with your background and experience, I, I think you know people should you should do it. If you you know if you want to learn more about catching, go go check out what uh, Zan Barksdale is doing. Um, I, I just I guess my first question I'd like to talk a little bit about catching without any any visual cues necessarily. Um, but for you, what are some of the ingredients um, to being a good catcher? What what you know, what does a, a guy who's maybe coming up through high school that wants to be, you know, is pretty good at that level, wants to be an elite college catcher, wants to play pro ball, you know, what are some things that a, that a catcher needs to do to really be elite and kind of uh, separate himself from just, you know, the average catchers that are that are out there that he's competing against? You know, Jeff, that's a good question, and it sounds like it's an easy question, but I think it can, it can actually be quite difficult because there are so many different ways that guys have success behind the plate. Um, I, I think the the first variable that, that most guys want to try to tackle is the physical side of it, um, whether it be, you know, your arm strength or your quickness or your bat speed, you know, how fast you uh, you throw, you run, you hit, you do all this stuff. Um, the physical aspect is important, um, and, and that's one area that I place a lot of emphasis on now is trying to get guys to become better athletes, whether that be through strength training or hip and ankle mobility or flexibility uh, or just general arm care. Um, that's a big part of it. But, you know, another big part of it that, uh, I also put a lot of attention and a lot of focus on it is kind of the mindset and the mentality um, where, you know, if you're a high school catcher, and I had this conversation with a guy the other day, th there's going to be a lot of guys who have similar attributes. You know, they're similar phys you know, physically. Uh, maybe their stats aren't very different. But if you want to be really good and you want to excel, um, I can tell you as a former college coach, a lot of times you're looking for, the, you know, kind of the intangible, the things that sets them apart. And that can be the mindset, and a lot of that's what I call leadership and just communication abilities. Um, I know I know one thing, when I was in high school, I probably wasn't the best communicator. I don't think most, you know, 14, 15, 16, 18-year-old kids are, but I think it's something that you can learn, and I think it's something you can become better at, and I think it's something that every college coach and every professional coach wants. They want the guy behind the plate who's going to take charge, communicate, um, take control of their staff, and just kind of, you know, take hold of that field general title. Tell me a little more specifically what that means to be a good communicator. What if, if you're a catcher and you are labeled a good communicator, what are you doing? And if that's something that you want to aspire to, what, what do you need to do? Like what is what is a good communicator as a catcher? Well, you know, I, I think different guys have different personalities. Um, and, you know, there's some guys who are more introverted than others. Some guys are more extroverted than others. Um, and I think it's perfectly okay. You know, you don't have to be one type of person or one type of personality. Maybe off the field you're, you're quiet and you like to read and you're uh, a little more reserved. Um, then there's other guys who are, you know, the, they're the life of the, the party. They're the, you know, class clown, whatever you want to call it, where they're just more extroverted and more outgoing. Um, but I'm convinced that it doesn't matter what your off the field personality is. 
you have to train your on-the-field personality. Um, and a good example of that is when I was in high school, like I said earlier, I probably wasn't the best communicator. When I went to junior college at Holmes Community College for Coach Kenny DuPont, um, I, I was probably average at best. One of the things that he forced us to do was to communicate and yell and, laugh, and, and be loud. Uh, and I always tell the joke that literally the four semesters that I was there, I lost my voice the first week of every semester because he forced us to communicate and be loud in practice. We had to um, yell to the pitchers during PFPs. We had to talk to the guys during bullpens. We had to provide feedback. Uh, you weren't allowed to just sit and catch a bullpen and be a mute. You had to give the guy feedback. You know, tell him, hey, good job. Go ahead hit your spot. That's a good pitch. Looks good today. Uh, every time they do something well, you have to talk to them. One of the things that I see uh, in a lot of catchers that I think they need to work on is, you know, learn the communications process, and it starts in the bullpen a lot of times. Um, I've seen a lot of guys in high school and younger and even older uh, that just don't communicate during bullpens. They sit there and they be mute, and they don't speak to the pitching coach or the, or the pitcher or don't give any feedback. And so that's one of the things I like guys to do, and that's a, that's a good place to practice and learn, um, that every time the pitcher – uh, you know, make some mistake. Maybe you give some reassurance, or maybe every time they do something well, um, you know, you can you give them some sort of positive feedback. Uh, and you just learn to communicate there, but you learn to be loud, and you learn to communicate with the other players on the team, the pitchers. You learn the cues that work for them, um, but you also learn how to communicate with the pitching coach and the rest of the coaches on staff as well. Communicating with coaches on the staff, are you as a catcher? Um, are you trying to communicate like what's working for that pitcher during that day and what's not? Are you trying to communicate like, hey, for this hitter, this is what I saw? Like, what's the communication for from the from catcher to coach, whether it's during a game or practice or, or whatever? Well, maybe. during a game in particular, I think both the things you just mentioned hit the nail on the head. Um, you, you know, you talk about where you see the hitter, and as a coach, we've both been in the dugout for a lot of games. Uh, but you still can't see everything from the dugout and from the catcher's box and being behind the plate. Maybe if a guy mid, you know, mid at bat changes where he is, maybe he creeps up on the plate, or maybe he backs off, or moves up on the box, or whatever he does. There's micro adjustments that you might notice as a catcher that you want to relay that feedback to the pitching coach to let him know. Uh, same thing, whether the stuff's working that day or whether it's not working. Um, it's important that when you're down in the bullpen before a game starts. You, you know, you may not tell the pitcher everything that you tell the pitching coach. So you may tell the pitcher, hey, man, you look great today. Everything's good. Let's go get him uh, because that's kind of his personality and that's what he needs to hear. But once you get to the dugout, maybe you go up to the pitching coach and tell him, like, hey, the uh, the slider today, ooh, that wasn't very good. I'd, I'd, I'd stick to more curveballs than sliders. And a lot of times that information is, is really important because every pitch is not going to be on every day. Um, and the, the more information, the more accurate information that we can get the pitching coach, uh, the better. So, yeah, it happens before the game, happens during practice, uh, and definitely should happen, you know, during the game as well. Just a curiosity question for me. Um, when you were in college, did you have a chance to call your own game and then moving into pro ball, I'm assuming that you did. So whether you did or did not get to call your own game in high school and college, what was the transition like um, to, to calling in pro ball? And just, you know, what did that uh, – did that change your opinion when you got to college about whether or not you know you, you let your own catchers call their game in college? Like your, you know your experience. Did that change at all what you what you thought or how you coached guys when you got into coaching? You know that's a tricky that's a tricky question, and we can honestly have an entire conversation just about that. Um, so, but let me start and tell you kind of uh, where I come from and how I developed uh, my thought process. So, when I was in high school, I called some of the games. Uh, the pitching or the head coach called some of the games as well. When I got to junior college. 
uh, head coach had a lot of faith in me. He let me call uh, the majority of the games. I think he, he may have called, you know, some or made some situations, but the majority of the time um, he let me and the pitcher decide what we thought was best. And then when I got to Ole Miss, uh, the head coach, Mike Bianco, uh, he called the game. I believe he still does. Uh, most college, you know, coaches still do, and a lot of high school coaches do now. Um, now I, th- I definitely think there's a time and a place for that. Um, but between junior college and pro ball, I didn't call any pitches for a couple of years. And then when I got to pro ball, um, you know, it's kind of unheard of. The, the, the pitching coach or head coach, no one ever, ever calls the game except for the catcher and the pitcher. So you kind of get thrown into this world. And, you know, between the ages of, you know, 20 and 22, that's a, the, the game changes a lot. It speeds up. Um, if you pay attention, you can learn a lot about it. Uh, so I went from calling pitches in junior college to now to try to call pitches for um, for professional pitchers against professional hitters. And I definitely made some blunders earlier in my career. Uh, but luckily the pitching coaches were helpful, and they would sit down with you between innings and kind of talk to you, hey, why would you call that pitch right there? And, and you kind of walk them through your process. And sometimes you had good reasoning behind it, and sometimes you didn't have as good a reasoning behind it. But it was a learning experience. Um, so now today I, I think it should be a mixture. I kind of call it a hybrid. You know, as a former college coach, I completely understand why guys want to call the games. Um, and, and, you know, if we're just being honest, if you're in, if you're a college player, you're going to prepare and you're going to get ready for the game, but you're not going to have the same level of preparation as a college coach does. You know, a college coach who, whose, you know, livelihood and job depends on winning baseball games, you're spending much more time going over the scouting report. Uh, you're watching video. You're talking to other coaches and, you know, buddies you know that have played against that team before. You have notes and charts from years previous about hitters. Um, you've got a lot of information at your disposal, so you probably have a better bank of information to draw from versus a, a college player who's you know, 19 or 20 or 21 years old. Um, so I, I understand why most college coaches call the game. I do think where a lot of guys can be better is kind of taking a hybrid approach and learning you know, when it's acceptable and when it's okay to hand the reins over and let them do it. For example, um, you know, if I'm watching a college game and it's a boat race and the, the team's up, you know, 9-1 to one in the fourth inning, well, that's a great time to let your pitcher and catcher go ahead and call the game to get some practice and give them feedback about what you think they're doing well uh, and then maybe some areas they can improve. I think that should happen during the game, not just after the game. Uh, but a pitching coach needs to take an active role in that. Um, but, but, yeah, the only way to really learn how to do it is to do it. If you were a college coach today and you had – a, uh, a catcher who was pretty astute, who was a learner, who was pretty cerebral, who was a guy with a really good feel, and a guy that um, you know could watch a hitter in a box, uh, or just even like reading swings, just like you do in pro ball, and and figuring out uh, I guess what to call. Would you would you at that point take the time uh, to come maybe maybe educate that hitter or that catcher a little bit on? Uh, the opposing hitters and maybe give a little bit of a scouting report or, or maybe have something on an armband and let him call his own game at that point? Or do you still think in college because of, you know, these, these college catchers, they're, they're obviously they're in class. They're putting a lot of time and effort into other things. They don't have as much time as you do as a coach. Uh, I guess the question is that, I guess, if you have a, a, a really gifted catcher, would you let him call his own game in college? Or do you still think that the amount of information the coach has, uh, the coach still needs to be calling it at that level? Again, that's a question that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a black and white answer because I, th- I think the obvious answer is yes. If you have, a you know, an intelligent catcher, and I don't mean IQ-wise, but baseball IQ, you know, smart, know the game, pay attention to hitters, read, you know, read 
uh, signs and see things. I think that they're a better um, they're a better fit to let someone call their own game. However, at the end of the day, the, the variable that we all have to think about is it's really not the catcher calling the game. You can have a smart catcher back there, you know, smart baseball catcher, but if you got a dummy pitcher on the mound um, who's going to shake him off and, and throw whatever he wants, then it really doesn't do you a whole lot of good. The, the catcher's giving the suggestions, um, you know, and the pitcher, ultimately the game's in his hands. He's the one getting the win or the loss. He's the one that needs to throw the pitch that he has conviction in. Um, so while the catcher isn't important in that, I'm not going to take the catcher's role out of it, uh, you, you can't neglect how important the pitcher is too. So it, it's more of a mixture of how well the pitcher and catcher work together. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with the pitcher's IQ, pitcher's baseball IQ, so to speak. Um, you know, maybe even more so than the catcher's baseball IQ. I thought it was kind of a neat thing that in college, my college coach would call in a scouting report. Uh, which is kind of a unique thing to do, and I, I haven't seen any. I haven't come across anybody that's done that uh, since uh, you know since him. But he would. It, we didn't use an armband, but basically he had a set of sign, a set of hand sign, hand signals that he would call into the catcher that would kind of say, uh, you know, what to start with, what to end with, how you think you can get him out, um, you know, things like that. He would he was able to call into the catcher, and then he let the catcher call his own game most of the time. After that was kind of unique. I can't tell you whether that worked better than some other ways or not, but I just that was kind of an interesting thing that um, I thought would be cool to throw in there, just that he did it. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's one of those things that I, I, that topic has kind of come up a little bit over the past couple of years because if you notice, most of the catchers in the MLB wear an armband now, um, and to people who are uh, maybe not necessarily uh, as keen to what's going on, they think that someone's calling pitches from the dugout, and that's very, very rarely what happens. I'm not, I'm not going to say never uh, because, you know, maybe it could happen at some point, but it's, that's happening very rarely. But the information the catchers have on their wristbands or the information just like you said, like, uh, hey, this guy, this is the guy that we can't let beat us. This is the guy who maybe has a tendency to uh, look away early. Um, you, you know, whatever the scouting report is, that's the information they're going to have. And so they can kind of develop a game plan on the fly, not on the fly, because they put, they put time into studying and going over video and film uh, previously. But they can make a decision on the fly. It's not necessarily a pitch that's given to them, uh, but they've got information about the hitter uh, on their wristband. From the time then you, when you played in college baseball uh, until now, the catching position has changed a lot as far as what's being taught, um, what's acceptable, and, and what's sort of thought to be ahead of the curve. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen, um, and, and why do you think that those things have changed as far as coaching the position? Because I, as a college coach, I, I coached catchers a couple years, and, and I, I uh, was like an emergency catcher in college, and I did a, you know, a fair amount of, of, of research and at, you know, at conventions. I was making sure I was listening to all, you know, all the catching guys that spoke, and, and felt like I did a, a pretty fair job as a catching coach, but it's different now. It's different. Um, what's changed from when you first played and what you were being taught at that age until now, and why do you think that's changed? You absolutely hit the nail on the head that, you know, things have changed. And I played in college, you know, almost, God, it's been almost 20 years ago now. But things have really started to change in the past five years or so uh, for catchers. And if you just notice the baseball world, things have really changed in the past five, you know, five to ten, maybe even 12 years um, on a lot of different levels. And I think the most obvious one is just how guys prepare. You know, when I was – uh, in college and, and younger, everybody did the same stretching would say. You know, it was feet together, down. You know, you, you would do static stretching, and then you would throw, and that was kind of it. 
Uh, now, the, the way the physical preparations change, guys are doing dynamic stretching routines. Almost every player is going through an arm care program. Uh, they're doing post uh, post throwing therapy. Um, you know, pitchers running. It's changed from long distance to sprint. So there, there's been a lot of changes. It's not just in the catching world, but I think the reason the catching has changed most dramatically and the most quickly is because of the use of technology. Uh, and where that starts is in the major leagues. They have the systems like Hawkeye and TrackMan uh, that can, you know, very specifically track the location of a pitch, and then it can measure the outcome based upon what the expected outcome was. Uh, so, for example, and when I was playing, there was no real objective way to measure a catcher. It was just he looks like he's a good receiver. Uh, he looks like he's a good blocker. But there was no statistical numbers where they could compare me versus someone else. Now, with the use of technology, you can, you know, statistically analyze a player and say he's saving the team uh, two runs a game versus this guy is costing us one run a game. He's getting more strikes than his teammates, you know, wins above that. There's all these different statistics that, that are available now um, that weren't available back then. And what that's led into or it's turned into is the way, uh, I'd say the most dramatic difference is in the way guys receive. Um, when I was growing up, it was, it was very um, it was very stationary. You want to catch the ball, pick the ball, show it to the umpire, let him see it. You didn't want to try to show the umpire up. It, the goal was not to fool him. Um, and now over the past couple of years, just through the use of, you know, this new technology, we've kind of realized that, you know, you can use certain techniques, you know, manipulating the baseball to try to turn balls into strikes. Um, and they work a lot more often than what we previously thought they did. So just to stick with that, uh, the receiving, just watching Major League Baseball, you know, everybody, I don't think it takes a trained eye to see that the receiving has changed. Um, there, you know, maybe 10 years ago, even five years ago maybe, there wasn't, your catchers were basically taught to not really move the baseball. If it's a ball, just catch it and throw it back. If it's a strike, catch it where it is, make it look like that, you know, make it look like a strike, don't pull it out of the zone. But now you see a lot of catchers that are pulling the ball back, you know, into almost the middle of the zone, and, and I don't, not, um, I don't know how way to to say this without showing it, but but they try to receive it actively, almost like an infielder, where it's like a natural motion to sort of catching it. You're, you're almost catching it as you're as you're catching it. You're like you know naturally moving back toward the strike zone, toward the edge of the strike zone, or toward the middle of the strike zone. I just kind of want to ask your opinion as a as a catching. Uh, what I would call a really good catching coach and a guy that uh, you, you've played and coached at a high level again. What do you think about that? Um, and is that something, is the, the moving of the glove, is that something that you think needs to stay at the major league level or is that something that you would be teaching to lower levels? And, and let me just preface by saying one more thing. I'm sure that when you were younger and, and when I was younger, you were taught not to move the ball because you're going to make the umpire look bad. You know, if you're pulling a ball that's a ball into the middle of the strike zone, it's getting called a ball. The umpire, people are going to start getting on the umpire. The umpire is going to get ticked off at you as the catcher, and you're going to get fewer and fewer calls. At the major league level, umpires are are um, judged by, you know, like the track track man and, and, and those, all those other systems. Like, if this was a strike, it needs to be called a strike, regardless of what the catcher is doing. So let me just ask your opinion on the amount of movement that you see in a, you know, a catcher's glove have at the pro level and whether or not you think it's appropriate to trickle down to lower levels or whether the lower levels should still be receiving probably like you and I were both, I'm assuming that you and I were both taught, I think that's what most catching coaches were, were taught, were teaching at that time was just to basically once you catch it, to be firm with it, keep the ball as still as you can. 
I hope I'm doing a good job explaining kind of what I'm yeah, after yeah, there. Absolutely. And there's kind of a few, there's a few things to unpack there. So let me kind of start with uh, the major league level. And, and I would say it started, I, I've forgotten the exact year off the top of my head, but uh, it was probably 2016 or 17-ish. Uh, Tyler Flowers was the number one receiving catcher um, in the MLB. And it, all the catching coaches watched him. And just to be flat honest, it looked awful. I mean, it looked the way he caught looked terrible. It looked so much different than anything we had been taught. He's using more of the techniques like you're talking about now, where you you lift the ball and you move the ball back, you know, towards the middle of the strike zone, as opposed to just catching it and sticking it and throwing it back. Um, and, and so, if you just watch him as a, a trained catching guy, even a catching guy who has, you know, a trained eye, uh, it looked really bad. But then when you look at the numbers that show how well he received it kind of made you scratch your head. And uh, so I would say I try to remain open-minded about everything. I try to remain open-minded and skeptical at the same time. Um, I don't want to just jump on a bandwagon because that's the latest trend. That's the hottest thing to do. I want to, you know, thoroughly study it, make sure that's what um, what, what the data shows and what the research says is working. Um, so for, for a year or maybe even two years, I was a little bit hesitant to kind of jump on the, you know, the manipulation train. Um, but, but, you know, we continue to watch it. We continue to see the best guys in the big leagues. They are moving the baseball, and they're the ones that are getting the most strikes, and they're the ones that are fooling the umpire the most. So it's kind of hard to argue that that works. Um, secondly, kind of moving on to the other point you mentioned, you know, how far should it trickle down? I would say a lot of younger guys, and when I say younger, I mean amateur baseball, college, high school, uh, middle school, and, and lower even. A lot of those guys are being taught the same techniques, um, and, and I will say this. I wouldn't say it's irrelevant at the younger ages, but I think it's less important at the younger ages. At the, at the younger ages, there are even so many more variables in the big league level. Um, the, the umpires are going to be different, and I hate to say worse, but let's be honest. The amateur baseball players are worse than professional baseball players. Amateur umpires are worse than professional umpires. So there's going to be a lot more variance in the umpire strike zone, uh, which changes a lot of things. Um, it's going to change more from batter to batter or pitcher to pitcher and situation um, goes on and on. Um, the, the pitchers have a lot less precision with how they can throw the ball, a lot less command and control, so they're not able to hit the you know the bottom of the strike zone as much. So a lot of times the, the high school umpires will expand the zone. And, and again, I'm kind of rambling now, but you see there's, there's a lot of things happening at the younger ages um, that don't happen at the big league level. But I think the biggest one, is that there's not a high school field in the country that has the, the Hawkeye system that's used in the big leagues uh, that tracks the ball flight, and that's, that's what produces the stat cast and those type things you see. So there's really no way to measure how well it works or how well it doesn't. Um, so if I'm, a, if I'm a high school kid and I'm playing a summer baseball tournament and I, I try to stick all the pitches one game and the next game I try to lift them, I really have no way to get feedback which, which game I did a better job. Um, so th that's why I think it's less important at the young ages. I still think it's important to develop uh, the basics, that, like you said, you and I were taught, you know, to, to be able to control the ball because I don't think you can manipulate the ball until you're able to control it. Um, so I, I think, you know, step one and two are the same as they've always been, um, but now we're just kind of progressing into step three, four, and five down the road. So I wouldn't say it's, it's not useful. I wouldn't say it's not helpful. I would just say it's something that's much more beneficial as you move higher up the ranks. I like that. I like the outlook there. And, um, you know, I just want to – I like asking those types of questions to people that I would consider an expert in a certain area because I, I do think that sometimes what 
guys are doing in pro ball at the major league level aren't going to work necessarily at lower levels, and I think it's important for people to hear from maybe a voice of reason, <laughs> uh, and just to kind of to kind of have that debate. And and that's one of the one of the, my thoughts about that in particular about receiving in particular is that um, you know ha- have umpires for for little league or or high school baseball changed? Are they are have they changed over the last twenty years? I don't know if they're better or worse. They're probably roughly the same. And and um, I, I still know that those guys, a major league umpire can't penalize a catcher. You know, like in the, in the old days, you, you hear stories about uh, pitchers that would get six inches, eight inches off the plate because of the last name on their jersey, and you, you don't have that now because umpires are being judged so strictly um, about you got to call a strike a strike and a ball a ball. Um, but, you know, at high school, like, nothing's really changed over the last 20 or 30 years, and so that, I just thought it was important to, to kind of bring that up. And, uh, you know, one other thing I'll ask you, Zan, before, uh, before we cut this off, uh, about, it's about one knee receiving. It's another thing that is really – become fairly prominent in in guys that are coaching younger catchers is is the one knee receiving and uh would like to kind of get your take on that because that's another thing that really wasn't not that nobody did it but it really wasn't something that you that you saw taught a lot um you know you're you're a little bit older than me but when you know when we were playing i don't think it was seen much but now it's it's almost like one of those things that almost everybody's doing and uh kind of want to get your take on that as well and uh you know, some benefits or, or even maybe some things that you see can go wrong with that. Um, you know, speaking to, again, catchers from, you know, from Little League through high school and even at the college level, we'd just kind of like, love to get your take on the one knee receiving. Yeah, well, and that's definitely the way things are going, you know, and it kind of goes back to like we talked about a few minutes ago. You know, at the big league level, you see the statistics and, and you see um, the catchers are able and their goal is to, you know, optimize the bottom of the strike zone. That's the most important strike to steal. Um and that's, you know, so catchers who can get more strikes at the bottom of the zone are going to have higher, um, you know, ratings, so to speak. So that's why, you know, some of these guys are, are switching to the one-knee stance so they can try to get into a better position, get lower, um, and optimize the bottom of the strike zone. And, again, there's data, no doubt, it absolutely works for some guys. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I try to remain open-minded about everything, but at the same time I, I want to be skeptical as well. I want to make sure – it's proven before I jump on board and I start teaching guys that. Um, and there are definitely certain guys that it works for. Um, it's similar, you know, it's what we talked about a minute ago. I do think it's probably more important at the big league level than it is at the lower levels. doesn't mean it should be, you know, completely not used or not taught. Um, but I, I, think it, it, I think it can be uh, a helpful tool. You know, not too many years ago, if you saw a catcher on a knee, you, the first thought you might immediately thought was, oh, this guy's late guy has poor work ethic. He's not ready to get after it back there. Um, but we see it's not the case. You know, a lot of these guys in the big leagues, not, they're not getting on knee because they're lazy. They're getting on knee because they think they can get more strikes at the bottom of the zone. Um, and if they can prove they can get more strikes at the bottom of the zone, then statistically they can prove, you know, to their club or, or to whoever, that that's going to make that's going to make them more valuable to the team, help them win more games. Um, so, I, you know, I definitely think there's a place for it. I think that's one of those tricky things where it's, it's very different for everybody. You know, some guys go right knee down, some guys go left knee down, some guys go into kick stance or kick stand, which is kind of the old Tony Pena. Um, you know, with everybody having a different anatomy and having different uh, shapes and sizes and proportions and mobility, uh, it's one of those things you kind of have to work with guys individually on and figure out what works best for them. Uh, just because, you know, I can get down really low in a one knee stance 
maybe my hip mobility is a lot different than yours. Maybe you have different ankle mobility than I do, and I'm just not as good of a blocker out of a one knee stance. Some guys are excellent blockers out of a one knee stance. Um, it's one of those things where I think it's a, a good general principle to have, but there definitely has to be some specificity um, and some individualization, you know, as you're working with players with it. You can't just teach everybody the exact same. We're going to get in a one knee stance because this is what works. This is another thing that I think originated. When it originated at the major league level, a, a big reason why is because major league teams are really not stealing bases. Um, it's either, like statistics have shown, either you're a base stealer or you're not. Uh, and the, you know, there are guys in the big leagues that are still stealing 40-plus bases, but there are a bunch of guys who are hardly ever running, um, which is that that is something that has changed. So to that point, catchers don't need to worry about base runners unless, you know, if D. Gordon's on base or Ronald Acuna's on, on base, that's different. Uh, but, you know, majority of guys when they're on base, they're, they're not going to run. They're not really, they're not going to, they don't have to worry. The catchers need to worry about a guy stealing a base. And I think that's what has helped this to be a thing in, in the major leagues is that the, the, the priority to throw out runners has decreased and which has allowed uh, catchers to, to play more on a knee and play lower because they don't have to worry about throwing guys out as much. So I guess the follow-up questions, Dan, this will be the last one for you. Um, trickle that down to, again, the lower levels where, you know, high school, college baseball, little league baseball, I think that you probably see as many stolen bases as you as you ever have. I, I don't know that it's, it's up or down, but it's probably pretty similar. I know you have teams that don't run, but you probably have always had college teams that don't run. You have other college teams that steal bases like crazy at every level. Um, so... Just you know, with that in mind, would you teach a guy, a, a catcher right now, to prioritize receiving so much that they are they are receiving on one knee, even with guys on base? Or if you're coaching a catcher right now, or is that something for you? And I just want to know your your personal opinion. Is that something that you're more focused on with nobody on, and with guys on base, we're going to go into our traditional secondary stance where we are ready to throw somebody out. Well, I'll go ahead and say this. I think you made a very important distinction there that I think a lot of people lose in the conversation. And I had a, I don't know if argument is the correct word, but I had a Twitter argument or discussion with somebody the other day about it. Um, and yet, in the major league level, the stolen bases are absolutely down. I mean, the numbers are way down. Um, and so I, I do think it's, you know, more uh, more likely that a big league catcher can get down on a knee and overcome because they, they have to throw less often where, like you, I don't know the exact statistics or exact numbers, but from the college games that I've watched, um, the, the running game is still alive and well. Um, the high schools, exact same. I think it's alive and well. And sure, I know different programs or um, organizations have different philosophies and different styles, but I think overall there are going to be more stolen base attempts at the younger levels. Um, just because in the big leagues, now guys are pretty much only going when they know that they're going to be able to steal a base. Um, if you look at the catchers, the caught stealing percentage, those numbers are down from what they used to be, and I don't think it's because catchers are worse or catchers, you know, have worse arms or don't throw as well. I think it's because um, the, the the base runners are smarter and they're basically playing the books. They're they know the numbers and they're only going to go when they have a very high success rate. They're not as likely uh, to chance it now. So I, I, I do think at the big league level, you know, guys getting on a one knee stance has some impact on that. I know some of the guys that teach, you know, the coaches at that level, um, again, they have to modify it. You know, there's, when, when you and I were growing up and being taught, there was a couple different stances. There was the signal stance, there was the primary stance, and the secondary stance. 
Now I would say more guys have modified secondaries and modified primaries where um, it, I may be in a, in a secondary stance because the runner's on base, but my priority may be blocking or receiving over necessarily throwing. Um, so e even though there's a situation, we still mod modify and tailor our stance uh, to where it's much more fluid and it changes kind of based on depending on that individual situation and what's going on and what we feel like, you know, the highest percentage play uh, is for us. I think it's a it's such a good debate to have, and I think it's a, de it's a debate that's necessary. And I think it's a debate that's necessary because at, at lower levels you can't always do what you see at the at the higher level because they just things are a little bit different there, you know, one one way or another. And I think that's a it's it's a it's a good debate. And I think if you're not open to the debate, then you're probably going to miss at least you know at least part of what's important. So then I appreciate uh, your outlook and your input. This is Zan Barksdale, everybody. He's uh, one of the best catching guys in the country. He's worked at, at very high levels of college, worked with Team USA. Um, if, you, if you Google him, you will find multiple websites that he has that uh, you can find products, you can find information, you can find books, you can find videos. Um, there's so many resources that he offers for catchers, for catching coaches, for hitters. Um, I, I would encourage you to check him out if you haven't done it. Zan, sincerely appreciate your time today and all the information that you shared. It was great, and just uh, want to thank you for being on the podcast. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It feels like the uh, the time flew, so if we ever want to come back for a round two, just let me know. Yeah, man, sounds good. I think we can arrange it, especially during the quarantine when <laughs> who's got anything better to do? I'm, I'm sitting in my upstairs yeah, right now. And... Free time now than uh, usual. <laughs> Same here. I don't know if you heard of it, but my, my six-year-old came in at some point during this, and that's the only bad part about it is uh, she wanted to know where something was for the dog, and I'm pointing to the phone, but it is what it is. But, uh, man, no, so, so thank you so much for your time. I, I think round two will be great sometime to do, and, uh, and just wish you and your family the best of luck with everything. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. You too.